Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Hello there Matt, how are you? I'm feeling really good this week, thanks Mark. Oh that's the way buddy. I must admit, it was lovely to see uh, during the week, I was going through uh, your Facebook post there, and there was this lovely picture of you in there, a little video of you, with this beautiful little red bow tie sitting up there, sitting on top of your head, little bow ribbon, should I say. <laughs> and that was all part of the, the Wuthering Heights uh, experience last week down there at the Aldebo Jail. So talk me through it. You look rather uh, rather stylish in that little red dress you had on as well. Stylish. I was wondering what word you are going to use I was thinking there. about it. I, I I thought of a few words, but I had a little bit of pause. I thought, style will have to work. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard finding a red dress. I actually That fitted you? or Well, that probably as well. But <laughs> my wife doesn't have any red dresses, she so she didn't right. have any to steal. So we actually ended up going through the kids' dress-up box, which you accumulate lots of stuff yes, over. Yes. The kids going through various book club weeks and all sorts of things. Yes. And so we ended up finding it was a Roman leader's uniform right, for some yeah, things yeah, the kids okay, did. Yes. Turned that inside out because it had lots of gold on the outside. I turned it inside out yep. and then that was my red dress and, and that, such. That, that was you and Kate Bush That's there right. in that one little moment. And that was the most Wuthering Heights day ever. Mm. Again, one of the things I liked about it, I didn't like the idea of getting dressed up in a red dress. Oh, come on now. <laughs> I didn't like the idea of having to dance because I've got a, a severe lack of talent for dancing. Uh, but it was a community day and this is, goes back yes. to about 2013, mm. it's been this thing that's been happening and growing around the world that on Kate Bush's birthday or near enough, people go and emulate or, or copy the Wuthering Heights dance from right. the film clip that Kate did back, I think, 1978. That was the song yes, Wuthering Heights. Yes. That was a big hit for Kate Bush. Mm. And they simulate that or, or copy that whole dance and raise money sometimes or just do it for fun, I'm not yeah, sure. But yeah. in this particular one, it was a fundraiser. But what I like about it is you've got people in our community who – decide they want to do something good. They mm. want to raise some money. They want to raise awareness, whatever it might be. Yeah. And they do things. And that's exactly what happened in this mm. particular scenario. Cam and Chaz said, we want to raise some money. We want to get some money towards cancer fundraising. Samuel Johnson was in town. So right, they yes. previously been in town. So they wanted to do something to support Samuel and, and his efforts around cancer. Mm. So that's what they came up with. Come along, raise some money for that. That was and fabulous. Yeah, it, it was. Terrific, there were probably it? 50 or 60 people there. There were two males. There were James, Eddie, and myself dressed right. up there. <laughs> now, James, of course, was a female with a big beard. <laughs> For well, anyone I, who has to see the video clip and think, hmm, I don't know if actually is a very attractive female. I prefer to call James the bearded lady. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good. There were, there were a lot of people there, and just getting into the spirit of it all, I think, yes. is the most important thing. It but looked it, like a lot of fun. It, it was a lot of fun, but again, it's that thing that I love, that we've got goers in our community. We've mm. got people who get in there, have a go, and make things happen mm. and there's a real sense of community it's still a small enough city that there's still that sense of community yes. still that sense of people being there for each other which Absolutely. i love about it it's got lots of the facilities you want lots of the health facilities or the theater or uh, a good cinema all these sorts of things that we mm. love in our city but still small enough that people care yeah. about each other. well well done to cam and shares and well done to yourself for being such a good sport as well <laughs> thanks I'd like to start off our podcast this week, Matt, with uh, a conference that was held out here in Dubbo, the Aerial Firefighting uh, Series of Conferences. This is the Asia-Pacific Conference and Exhibition um, Series. And so talk us about it. This, uh, this is a, a massive event here for Dubbo, and I noticed the fact that some of the other 
places around the world where this conference is held um, are places like Seattle and Athens. So, so talk us through it, Matt. What actually happened out there during the week uh, out there near the airport? They do take this conference to different locations around the world, mm. and each year they'll typically run it maybe once or twice, or sometimes even three times in a year. And obviously, there's a fair bit of competition in terms of the various cities where they hold it. So you spot on this year it was held. In Seattle, they've had one in Seattle already. Mm. They've now had this one in Dubbo, mm. and then they've got another one to come in Athens. So for wow. this year, the three cities that are holding it, Seattle, Athens, and Dubbo. It sounds like one of those great little T-shirts, doesn't it? It That's does, it. Yeah. yeah. What does Seattle, Athens, and Dubbo That's right. all have in there common? And I did make mention of the fact that I'm sure that the mayor of Seattle and the mayor of Athens felt very privileged when they were welcoming people to the conference in each of those cities, which I assume each of those mayors would do, that they were very privileged to say that and it's also being held in Dubbo this year. That's Dubbo, not Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. uh, but again, when I was out there at the welcome, it was actually quite fascinating. Mm. Probably about 280 people were here in Dubbo for this conference. Wow. Probably 30, I'm guessing, were from America. Okay. There were people from a, a range of different countries. They had people from Canada, New Zealand, Singapore, the UK, I mentioned the USA, even Luxembourg. So, so these people came from all over specifically to come to this conference? Just for this, yeah. Wow. It's, it's a big deal. This aerial yeah. firefighting conference, or the series if you like, is a mm. big deal where lots of new technology is showing off, lots of techniques and a whole range of, of demonstrations. Mm. So like any conference, you're there to learn, there to see what is the latest and greatest in your particular industry. Mm. But again, Dubbo is so well served by lots of these conferences coming mm. through. But now you've got these people, and again, I end up just talking to random people at the welcome event, but came across some people from the UK, came across mm. some people from the US of A, talked to them about the various things. So some of the people from the US of A, for example, mm. they talk about an MOU, they were from California, right. they talk about an MOU that their particular area's got with the Rural Fire Service here in New South Wales. Yep. So at the moment, for example, we've got a 737 over in California. They're a large aerial tanker, 737. Mm. They're helping to fight fires over there. When we get to our summer, mm. we'll have some equipment from their particular firefighting service that's in their winter. Yeah, that, right. Why have it sit there for yep. six months of the year when you could be using it somewhere else? They'll have some of their equipment over here mm. helping us fight our bushfires. And that sort of stuff will be based here in Dubbo, will it? Or? Not necessarily. It'll be based somewhere in New South Wales. But, yeah. for example, there's an RJ85 from Canada right. that's based in Dubbo okay. each summer. It's probably up to maybe season six or season seven this year coming yeah, up. Okay. I've met Captain Rick a few times, mm -hmm. and he likes to be called Captain Rick. Captain Rick. So <laughs> Captain Rick. I'm happy to call Sounds him Captain Sounds like Rick. something out of one of those cartoon series. <laughs> but uh, he, he loves Dubbo. He thinks yep. it's fantastic. But he's been here for well, at least the last five or six seasons oh, wow. where he's been stationed in Dubbo. He flies the RJ85. And people would be familiar with that. In summer, mm. they'd go out there and they'd see a large red and white aircraft sitting off to the right of the apron mm. and hopefully it just sits there. But, mm. of course, every summer it is called into action somewhere, but we'd love to see it just sit there yeah. and, and never used. Yep, but absolutely. that doesn't happen. But one of the things that's really exciting about this now and probably one of the reasons that it was brought to Dubbo this year mm. is that the Rural Fire Service in the precinct out there at the airport mm. that's got lots of these various facilities. So you've got SES and VRA and RFS and yes. the police are building a building there as well now. You've got these great training facilities and there's a new centre of excellence, an aviation centre of excellence mm. that the RFS is building out there at the moment. It's mostly finished and they right. got to show some of the delegates through this one. Yep. 
but the simulations they've got there now are quite incredible. Yeah, right. And I've had a go in a helicopter simulator at the current RFS building, mm. but the new one will have more of these simulators and more training facilities. But in that simulator, you sit in something that is a simulated cockpit of a helicopter, but then mm. you put a, a VR headset on. Yep. I play with VR headsets with my son playing games, but yes. this is a great use of VR yep. where you actually sit in the helicopter, not as the pilot, so it's not doing pilot training, mm. but it's doing the RFS training. So for example, sitting in there, you've got someone flying the plane, but you've got someone else in either a plane or a helicopter mm. looking at the actual fire itself. And so when you've got these VR headset on, you're looking down, looking at the fire. You're seeing other aircraft in the air. You're looking at how you might dump the retardant on that fire. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you yeah, might be yeah. doing spotting of that fire. So yep. you have a, a plane called a bird dog. Right. I don't know if that's an official term, but that's what Captain Rick's like always... Well, there is, yes. Again, <laughs> yeah. sounds like something from the cartoon series. It's Captain Rick with that's his right. bird dog. That's so, right. So Captain Rick, when he's explained it to me, he says yeah. the bird dog's up high doing the spotting. Then you might have the large aerial tanker right. below being... Basically directed by the bird dog as to where to go. Yeah, right. Throw some helicopters in the mix as well to go out there and help spot. Or mm-hmm. you might have some of the, the large ones. We're familiar with the aircraft, the uh, helicopters with Elvis. Uh, oh, yes, People have yes, often seen yes. those. And they had a Chinook out there as well, uh, right. a real Chinook, not a simulated one. But the Elvis helicopters can carry about six tonnes. Yep. So six tonnes of water or six tonnes mm-hmm. of retardant. The Chinooks carry about eight tonnes. So oh, that's a, okay. a fair dump yeah, that yeah. you can put into a fire. Yep. The new Centre of Excellence, not only does it have the same simulators that I've had the chance to play with before, Mm. but they've got additional simulators that help with training. And so one of the ones they showed me there was one where you train some of your personnel on lifting people up or dropping people down into an area Mm. from a helicopter. Mm. Now, we've probably seen that in the news where someone has got the sling that goes under their arms and Mm. they get airlifted out of an area. Obviously, that's a fair bit of training you want someone to have done before you need to be rescued in an emergency. You mm. hope someone's done a fair bit of training mm. before they, oh, I think it goes this yeah, way. that's right, in the Just middle of the ocean or wherever you are on the side of a cliff. You'd like right. to think the person coming down to set you up knows what they're doing. Absolutely, yes. Now, one of the, the people from the RFS told me that when he was a lot younger doing his training, you did a lot of this training literally underneath the helicopter. Mm. But that helicopter sitting 150 feet above the ground mm. is costing $3,000 an hour wow. to train. Yeah. You're working out how to clip this on, how to put the sling on, yep. how to lift people up, all of that sort of training. Yep. This simulator is so good that you've got both sides of that training. So you get into a thing that looks like a helicopter right. and you've got a cable there and you put the VR headset on. Yeah. So you've got the same controls that you would have in the real helicopter. Yep. You then look down Mm. and there's a simulated person at the bottom and you get the hand signal from them. You start doing the lift. You get lifted up. You you actually get them into the helicopter, but again, it's all simulated. Think of the money they're saving straight away. All of that. And then you've got in another part of the building an area that lifts you up, Mm. but about a metre off the ground. So Mm. you've got the idea of physically putting on the harness and then lifting up or someone else being lifted up. This is all out here in Dubbo. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. What we've got there, exciting from a training perspective, but we've got people constantly flowing through this whole training centre. I was going to ask you the question in regards to that, because there are so many different operations out there now. Uh, so is, is there accommodation out there? There is obviously accommodation. People can come and stay there. That's the first thing. Yeah. By the time this new facility's finished, there'll be about 124 beds out there. Right. And you think, well, I don't see a lot of evidence of anything happening out there. Yeah. It's unusual to find many spare beds in that facility. Oh, okay. There is training, probably from Monday to Friday, maybe not so much on weekends, yeah. but Monday to so Friday. So it's pretty well booked out the whole year. Pretty well, yeah. And again, with conferences like this, I said, oh, well, some of these conference people stay in the train. No, no, they're all in Dubbo because we don't have the room in mm. all our 
yeah, our rooms that we've got there to yeah. actually fit all these people in. So that's yeah. fantastic. Now, I, I kind of, when I first heard about this, I thought, well, I'd prefer they were staying in Dubbo rather than out there because mm. you want the money injected into the economy. Mm. But in talking to the organisers, they're still hiring people to come out and clean the rooms. They're mm. still buying food from suppliers in Dubbo. So they are injecting money into the economy. Mm. And then you've got some of the pubs, for example, who are quite proactive. They'll send out a courtesy bus to pick up people and bring them in and That's then take idea, them out. That's a great isn't it? There yeah. you go. That's <laughs> it. a bit of ingenuity. Exactly right. Yeah. I, I love the idea. So you've got that capability, if you like, mm. to, to bring people in if they want to go to the mm. pub or go to the movies or whatever. So you can actually get those people into the community mm. and, and actually have oh, some money to inject in the economy. Yeah. So overall... Fantastic conference, yes. but it does highlight as well some of those facilities we've got out there. Yeah. The police training I mentioned before, that's not finished yet, but there'll be a, a building there. And that'll mm. be a huge cost saving for the police department because for keeping their skills up to date, they've often got to go back to Goulburn yes. to do some of the updates to their training. Once that facility's finished, a lot of the updates they'll be able to do here in Dubbo, mm. which will be great for police in our region, but also because we're right at an airport, it'll be convenient to fly people in from other areas from mm. around the state. Yep. So you might do your updates at Goulburn, but you might come to Dubbo to do your updates. There'll be more on that That's as brilliant. time goes forward. So it's become a real training precinct, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely right. As I said, with the RFS and what they're sharing in some of their other areas there, so yeah. you've got RFS headquarters and RFS training, mm. then you've got a whole range of different parts. But there's the building, which we've talked about before, that's mm. the simulated building where they put smoke into it, they have fake fires running in there, and they actually get people trained in a much safer environment. And mm. I suppose that's really important as well. For the helicopter training, obviously it's safer to train in a simulator. Mm. And when you get lifted up in that one that I said you physically yes. lift up, you might be lifted a metre above the ground. If something goes wrong, you get it wrong, you, you fall a metre and go, oh, I hurt my ankle a little mm, bit, but mm. you don't die. That's right. And in training, we do sometimes see people injured, some people Sad die. Sad true, that's yeah. right. Yes, and you yes. see equipment lost in that as well, yes. whereas in this simulator, yes. you still will do your final training out in the real world, but you've done most of it yes. in that simulated environment, so you've safer and cheaper. here in Dubbo. Exactly right. I'm at... Um We've spoken a fair bit uh, about Sharon Road in regards to uh, the updates uh, or the upgrading um, potential of what's maybe going to happen up there in Sharon Road and, and trying to create some safety options there for the kids walking, um, heading back there to the South Lakes area. So it looks like during the week, uh, mate, you had a bit of a chat to some of the principals up there. Uh, can you provide a bit of an update for us in regards to what's happening there with Sharon Road? We do like to have a regular meeting or, or set up a regular scheduled meeting with the principals up there. So you've got mm. the four schools up there. You've got the skill set, senior college. You've got Dubbo Christian School, St. John's Primary, and St. John's College. Mm. And the idea is when we've got an update, when we've got some things happening there, we like to let them know because obviously they're the main ones impacted mm. by any changes along there. Yep. So we had another one of those meetings. And I want to point out one part that was incredibly valuable out right, of the meeting. Okay. So we went yes. along to talk about a couple of the updates about the road network that we're proposing through Blue Ridge yep. to firstly take the traffic off Sheraton Road mm -hmm. so that we can then start to do some more or build that road better. Mm. But we don't want to do that better yet because there's still got heavy mm. trucks going on there. So it's, yep. a, it's a couple of steps there. Fix up Blue Ridge Road, do some land uh, acquisitions in there, get to the stage where we're saying to the trucks, you need to go through Blue Ridge mm -hmm. and, and have that traffic go straight out onto the highway mm. through Blue Ridge. Once we do that, and some short-term patching we'll do, but yep. once we do that, then we can do a, a full reconstruction of Sheraton Road 
to the standard that it should be at, mm. knowing that it's not going to be blown apart by heavy trucks on there. But there has been talk of a walkway, hasn't there? Like a bit of a path or something being formed. And one of the previous meetings we had, that's exactly one of the mm. issues that some people, for example, they might drop kids off at Boundary Road intersection with Sheraton Road and say, there you go, you can get mm. to school there. Or some kids might walk home into that Keswick area there, or they might even want to ride their push bikes. Mm. On that road, it's not a great road to start with, but there's mm. not a great shoulder on each mm. side of the road. So the principal said, what about a walkway along there? Now, we will have a walkway when we do that final construction. Is there some way we could do a temporary walkway that wouldn't be that expensive and still we could use some of that area that we prepare later on? Mm. So that was one of the discussions and, and definitely we'll have a, a temporary footpath that we'll put in there. Yep. And the timing of that was interesting. So when we started talking about the timing, mm. one of the principals said, so are you planning to do that before the school holidays, and the time was coming up in the next couple of months, mm. before the school holidays or after, and we've also got some HSC exams. How's it going to work around all of that? Mm. Now, the staff member we had responsible for this said, well, that's a really good point. My kids have all finished school now, ah, so okay, I'm not yes. necessarily in tune with when the school holidays are. So the opportunity S- to sit and have that discussion create a bit more awareness. You don't know what you're going to get out of a discussion yeah. until you sit down and have the discussion. Yeah, that's true. You've got an agenda, and we had certain things that we we're just going to communicate to give the principals an update. Yep. But again, suddenly, oh, hold on. Well, now that we know that, mm. let's think about that and time the works to as much as possible be done in the school holidays, yeah, nice. but still making sure it's completed before the HSC exams start so because we don't want to have... kids in that process as well. Yeah, yeah. we don't want to interrupt such an important part or time of their lives. Mm. Now, listeners might say, well, everyone knows when school holidays are. It should be obvious. You should be thinking about that. Well, not but necessarily, though. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? If though? you're not a school teacher and you haven't got kids at school Absolutely. anymore, then school holidays become yeah. less important. Absolutely. And, and I'm in that situation now where I don't have kids at school anymore. Yeah. And to a certain extent, you know about school holidays because you see some activities happening and you mm. go, oh, School right. holidays coming up. Yeah, that's it. Yes, but but that's the value, I suppose, out of meetings like that. You don't know what you're going to get out of it. So mm. we'll actually change our program now to tie in with those school holidays to make Excellent. sure we get that right. So a few things happening there. There's some table drain work that will start along that area as well. Yep. And we'll still be doing some of that Sheraton Road surface treatment. It won't fix some of the major issues with Sheraton Road, but we'll still do some of the surface treatment work. And again, we'll tie that in around the holidays. We were planning a certain time in August or September, but we'll yep. tie that in yeah, around nice. those holidays there. So some action happening there. Yep. Some things that people will be happy with. Still, I'm sure people would be happy to see things happening sooner rather than later. Mm. But I think the way we're approaching it is really about using the money in the best possible way, even though it would be nice to do it sooner rather than later. Mm. If we did that reconstruction of Sheraton Road, we'd be back talking about it again in a couple of years' time because Mm. of the damage that would be done. So I I think this is the right way to go about it. Happy to hear feedback from people, of, of course, as always. Absolutely. Now, uh, last uh, Saturday night, Matt, uh, you had the, the farewell to the Japanese delegation that are heading off to Minakomo. Almost. Other way around. The returning students. Oh, they're coming back, are they? Yeah, this is the Japanese students that have been here that are returning. Oh, sorry, my bad. Okay, so... <laughs> 
I need to look at my little notes a little bit closer, don't I? So, so these guys are actually, so they're returning. So they've been here. So these are the Japanese students that have been here. Correct. And they're going back over. So yeah. this is not our guys going over there. These are these no. guys going back. Our guys will be going soon because they'll go around the September school holiday time frame. Ah, okay. So they don't miss out on school because yes. you wouldn't want your students missing out on, on one minute of school. No, of course so not. We, Absolutely. We try holidays. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so how long were these kids here for? Were they here for a couple of weeks as well? Or? About 10 days typically. 10 days. Yeah. I, okay. I, I didn't actually get to welcome them. I was away when they turned up. So I didn't actually get to welcome them here. Right. But I got to say farewell to them. And it's it's... Um, it's only been here for, well, they've only been here for a short period of time, say 10 days. Yes. But just the emotional farewells, it's amazing mm. how tight-knit mm. the students become with their host students. And yes. so, yeah, there were a lot of tears on Saturday night. Oh, I could imagine. And uh, people are, are sad but happy. They've, mm. they've had an exciting time. They've learned a whole range of things and they've been exposed to different cultures, but yeah. they're then leaving. Now, I would imagine it's much easier for these kids to stay in touch because you've got social media now. And mm. I know we had a, a host student at our house years ago with one of our uh, our kids, mm. and I know my daughter still keeps in touch with her. But yeah, you've got social media; it's very Absolutely. easy to keep it's in easy touch. Easy these days, isn't it? Lord. Facebook, that Snapchat, this all Absolutely. of that. Yeah, all of that. Listen, you use social media. Oh, lingo person. Look, hey, I still work with kids, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only reason I know this stuff. So the other thing that I love whenever there's anything involving uh, Japanese students here is the taiko drumming. Mm, and so oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we've, yep. we've got some of our students here in, in Dubbo and actually Dubbo and Wellington that do some of that drumming. And, and that's just, it sounds fantastic. It's yes. just, it's, it's not only rhythmic, but it just, it it's feels rousing. like. It, it, it does, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it feels like it, it stirs you up from somewhere down deep. It's mm. just that that low frequency sound, I think. Yes. So that was great. But it, it is just fantastic to see that continuing on in terms of that exchange. Obviously, we've had a bit of time off with COVID that affected mm. so many things around the world. Yes. But now it's back in, in full swing and we've got to look to get our Wuzhang experience going again. But mm -hmm. for the moment, Minakamo's up and going. Mm. And yeah, another month or so's time, we'll be uh, sending some of our students off over there. Right. So we'll talk about our students going in a month's time. So yeah, they're excellent. Right. Yeah. Yes, but, well but, done. Well done. And I think they are fantastic ambassadors. You typically hear great stories about mm. the students that go in both directions, but certainly those Japanese students were great. And I did make mention when we did the most Wuthering Heights Day ever at the Old Dover Jail, which yes. you mentioned at the beginning of the show, yes. there was... Uh, one of the Japanese students, I did make mention that people have travelled from all over the world to be at that Wuthering Heights Day, including Japan. So she was very chuffed, the fact oh, that she got mentioned. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so well done to those students and yeah. also those host families. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matt, last Wednesday you went down to Sydney um, to start what was a couple of days of uh, some pretty important meetings from the sound of things. Uh, the first one on Wednesday, uh, you went to Parliament House and you caught up with a couple of people here uh, with, I'd suggest, a number of others with, let's start off with Honourable Paul Scully, MP, the Minister for Planning and Public Spaces. How'd that meeting go? Good, and I think it's important. There's a whole range of changes happening in planning, so it's important to have the relationship. And some of these meetings you have are about saying hello because mm. they're new ministers, new government. Yeah. Some of them are about some specific issues you might want to talk about. And it's really about making sure that the ministers know they've got someone to talk to if they need to say, well, we're thinking about this. I wonder who we could talk to mm. to just maybe test this out or test the water a little bit, mm. have a discussion. You really want to make sure it's a two-way street and it's mm. a relationship that you're building. So that's all very important mm. part of it. One of the issues that has been a major issue for a number of regional locations in relation to planning has mm. been the under-representation 
of numbers in terms of the projections. And this right. is something that we discussed with the last government. I know Adam Marshall, for example, was very keen to push this issue. Didn't get an outcome of it, but I know that he was pushing it very hard with the Department of Planning. For whatever reason, we've seen this happen for as long as I've been on council. Mm. The Department of Planning has various estimations, projections of a population. And those estimations typically are well and truly under what we see happening in the real world. So yeah, Why is that? Because that seems to be a common problem. It is a common problem, and I don't know the answer to that, mm. <laughs> but we need to keep pushing it mm. because what happens is they might say, yes, we predict that Dubbo will grow at 0.2% over the next five years, 0.2% mm. per year over the next five years or the next 10 years, and then the government makes... Funding basis based on that or...? Well, or makes the allocation of not just funding, mm. but resources from a government perspective mm. based on those numbers. How many police are we going to need? Mm. How many school teachers are we going to need? How many nurses are we going to need? Oh, let's look at the projections from the Department of Planning. Mm. Oh, look at that, 0.2% growth, blah, 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 blah. They go through the calculations. That's what we'll need. But then when we look back at it retrospectively, yeah. we go, well, it didn't grow up 0.2%, it grew up 1%. Yeah. That's a big difference, yeah. especially compounding. Absolutely. So we've had that discussion. Dubbo actually way back, maybe 2012, we engaged Bernard Salt, a very well-known demographer, mm. and we paid a lot of money mm. to Bernard to say, give us population projections based on all the data you've got available to, all the same data that is available to the Department of Planning, yeah. and give us your scenarios in terms of that population growth. We got a report, uh, we talked about that a little bit, in terms of the media and presented that report then to the Department of Planning and said, here's your numbers yeah. and here's the numbers we've had from someone external, independent. Yes, we paid him as a consultant, but still he's not going to go and make up numbers. Mm. He's still got his reputation to worry yeah. about. Here, here are the numbers based on that. They're vastly different. What can you do about that? Yeah. And again, I think we had a little bit of success with some numbers being lifted slightly, but mm. we're still seeing this. So one of the, the messages we gave to Paul was please have a, a talk to your department yep. because we need to get this right because it is actually having a negative impact on growth in regional locations. When yep. the numbers continually are underrepresented, it's yep. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. Then people say, oh, I'd like to move there, but oh, there's not enough schools. Yep. Oh, there's not enough teachers in those schools. Yep. Oh, I don't want to move there now because I can't get my kid into school. There's not enough police or not enough nurses, whatever it might be. Well, as you say, it's a very important discussion and it's something that needs to be trying to get as right as it possibly can based upon future predictions in regards to the growth. Because as you say, if it's all connected to funding and resources, you don't want to be under-resourced and you don't want to be underfunded. One of the things we also see is I've had discussions with various businesses, and I'm talking about large businesses mm. that have got access to lots of data, mm. and they're crunching numbers about whether they might open up a particular site in Dubbo. Yes. We've crunched the numbers, we've looked at this, this, and this, and so based on all of that, yes, we think it's viable for us to open up a branch or mm. a business in Dubbo. And consequently, they also might say, we've looked at all those numbers and we don't think we should open up. Mm. When the population predictions are well and truly under, and this is the government putting mm. out the numbers. So yep. it's not as so if... you think it should be a trustworthy source. That's right. Not as if it's just something that you saw on the back of a napkin on a table. No. It's, it's a trusted source with numbers that have got a whole bunch of data behind them, yeah. behind it, then surely you can trust that information. Yeah. When it's not quite right, that's a bit of a problem. So Absolutely. that's the message. And, and look, Paul certainly heard that and I appreciate the time that he gave us to hear that message and hopefully mm. take that back and then talk to his department and say, we need to get this right. Yeah. They haven't got it right in the past, but hopefully we can get it right Get it right now, absolutely. Yeah. 
along with uh, Paul Scully, you, uh, you've got up with a few other people here as well, like uh, Daniel Mookie, who's the, the Treasurer, um, Rose Jackson, who's the Minister for Water, Housing and Homelessness, Mental Health, Youth and, North, and also North Coast. Boy, oh boy, that is a title. And Janelle Saffin, uh, the MP for the Member for Lismore. So you've got up with a few others there. Out of those three people there, is there anything there that you feel as though would be interesting to sort of pass back? Well, the treasurer, it's always important to catch up with you the think, treasurer. Well, he's the money man, so he'd be the most <laughs> obvious one, wouldn't he? And, and I've met Daniel a few times. He, When he was in opposition, he came to Dubbo several times. Okay. And I'm not sure why initially I wasn't mayor at the time, uh, but he contacted me and said, do you mind if I have a chat to you? And so I chatted to him. So I've had some good discussions in the past, but it's actually good to talk to him now. He's the treasurer mm. because it doesn't matter which department you're talking to or what portfolio or what you're trying to do. So many times other ministers will say, well, look, we've just got to get that through Treasury. Mm. So Daniel's not a bad one to talk to. Daniel probably presented the image of the situation they're in and how they have a severe lack of funds, I, I suppose. Say, there's money's tight, there's not much to give. Uh, New government comes in. in. line. That's right. They always want to point to the last government yep. and talk about that. They've taken over record levels of debt, is what yes. Daniel told us, and the servicing of that debt is more than the cost of running some departments. Mm-hmm. So don't expect anything to be fantastic when the budget's announced. They are doing a budget in September, mm-hmm. which is obviously not the normal budget time frame. Normally June is mm-hmm. when they do a budget. But because they're new into government, they mm-hmm. put it into a September time frame and then there'll be another budget for June next year. Mm-hmm. The messaging really, and it's a messaging that we've heard from other areas of government as well, the messaging mm-hmm. really from Daniel was don't be too concerned when you see a pretty tough budget in September. It really is us just trying to get things back in line and then June next year we might look at a budget that is a bit more favourable. There are some concerns, which we expressed to Daniel, around a range of programs that have been running. Mm. There has been some money flowing to regional areas, which is great. Mm. I get it that a new government wants to come in and change the name. Mm. They don't want to have the same names as the last government. Stronger Country Communities Fund, great. But we don't want to call it that same name because that was associated with the last government. Mm. Call it something else. Mm. Call it communities that have got stronger funds or whatever you want to call it, but keep the money flowing. I'm not convinced the money will continue flowing at the same level initially at least, mm. but we've got to keep talking to Daniel and, and the importance of that. Are there any sort of, of projects that. here that, that, sh- that you're maybe a little bit concerned about here uh, that may be affected by some change in funding? Well, there's two parts that are important. Anything that's already had funding announced for it, mm. anything that's had funding that's already put aside. So we talked last week about some of that destination money. No, none of those funds that are already done. The Create New South Wales money we've got for the Rotary Cultural Tourism Centre, all those funds – they're already locked away mm. and a new government's not going to come in and revoke those ones that have previously been given. Mm. They're not going to honour election promises, which was a funny question that Daniel did mention. He said, some mm. people have said, are you going to honour election promises from the coalition? And and I, I wouldn't expect them to. No. And of course he said, no, we're not. They're, yep. they're not our election promises. They're mm. their election promises. Mm. So no, but a few things. Any election promises they made, they're going to be a high priority. Obviously, they've gotten in based on some promises. We're going to do that. Any of those previous ones, definitely. But any funds that hadn't already been allocated, secured, guaranteed, no, they're not necessarily going to be given. And and we've got none in that scenario. We've got funds that we would have applied for under the old grants, but obviously new government, those grants not necessarily available at the moment. So, so is that sort of how it works from the point of view of, of getting just in the general logistics of how it works with working with Treasury down there? Um, so from the council perspective, do they get money from Treasury through grants? Is that the primary focus where they get the money from? In terms of where council gets money yeah, from? Yeah, where council gets money yeah, from. So you're right. The, there's a program 
in federal government called FAGS, Federal Assistance Grant Scheme. Okay. And that's an allocation of money based on a size of your council area, a certain percentage. It's a, it's a formula, basically. Yep. And what's great about that is that every council across the nation mm. gets some money from FAGS. So mm. that's it done. You know that money's coming. Sometimes they'll change the amount. They froze the indexing of that recently so that the amount stayed static for a few years. But mm. you knew that was coming. You could budget on that. One of the issues, and we've talked to the Treasurer about this, we've talked to various departments about this, one of the issues that you do have is that often you rely on various grant money coming through from the state government for various projects. Mm. Now, you're pretty confident you're going to get that money. You're pretty confident you're going to have some projects that will be applicable for certain grant money. But there's a a couple of issues. Mm. One, it's hard to budget properly Mm. on money that you think you're going to get. And we're pretty confident, yes, there's that grant and we know we're going to apply for that and there's this money over there. But do you know for sure? Not really. Mm. The second part is it costs money to put in grant applications. So there are some councils that I know, I've spoken to some councils, where they've said, we're not putting in for that grant, we can't afford to put in for that grant. That's that right. Which sounds crazy. Hold, yeah, hold yeah. on, if you need the money, yeah, yeah. put in for that grant. But the cost of putting in for that grant is more than they can risk because you might not get the grant. So when you say the cost, but what would be the cost in regards to putting in for a grant for those listeners out there like me thinking, okay, where, where are the costs? Is this on the personnel who are actually putting the grant together? or A couple of different costs might be applicable. Depending on the size of the grant and the project itself, it might just be your staff need to allocate the time to go and complete the application processes to mm. fill in that grant. So if you put a cost associated, it might be, $10,000, mm. might be $15,000 in staff time because yeah. the government, in all fairness, yep. needs to make sure that they're giving the grant money out to projects that are applicable yep. and it's being done the right way. So yeah. I could get that. It could be the that. research, it could be the staff time, the, the other projects they're missing out on doing because they're allocating their time to this project sort of thing. Is that the way? Yeah, spot on. So someone says, oh, can you get a staff member to go and do this? Well, sorry, they're busy doing this other yeah, project. Yeah. So staff have only got so many hours in a week. But then when it gets to bigger grants, mm. sometimes you'll want to see a business case to support that grant to mm. show that the government's getting an appropriate Does ROI. That mean maybe bringing consultants or something, Correct. is it? Yep. Okay. And if I'll give you an example from the past, when we put in the first grant application for Barden Park to get the money to build what we've now got, a, a wonderful international standard athletics facility, mm. then we were unsuccessful. So we put in a grant, spent staff time, went through the process and put that in. And then we thought we had a pretty good argument. We thought we had a pretty good case and we're pretty disappointed about that. In, and I was mayor at the time and I spoke to a person and the federal government money was the main one we wanted. We had some money from the state government, but their money was contingent upon the federal government money mm, coming in. Yep. And so I spoke to someone and in the end to really find out why and, and get to the bottom of it and have another go at it, Murray Wood, who was a director at the time, right. and myself, flew yes. to Canberra. We sat down, we went through a process and really had that face-to-face meeting with someone to discuss mm. the, the whole process yep. about what this would mean for not just Dubbo but the entire region and really trying to get a handle with this person on what it meant. Now, mm. the person we spoke to had recently come from overseas and they were working for the federal government, right. but their understanding of regional New South Wales, their understanding of the people throughout our entire region who would have pretty poor athletic facilities in their hometowns, but being able to get to Dubbo to run on that standard of track Mm. was significant. And 
he looked on a map, but a map doesn't show you the distances mm. we're talking about Absolutely. here. Because he said, well, those people can just get to Sydney. They could go and run down at Homebush. You've got an athletics track there. They have no real understanding, do they, of that situation. That's right. You hit the nail on the head. So just having that discussion and mm. understanding, and in fact, I think he said something to me in that meeting where he said, I understand regional because I went on a wine tour from Canberra to Cowra for a weekend. So that was... <laughs> that was his understanding of regional, was That's it? right. So a lovely wine tour. Hmm. And, and Sounds lovely, but I necessarily would say it's going to give you much education on regional New South Wales. That's right. And and Cowra, look again, lovely, lovely, lovely place, Cowra. But, but probably not the same as getting out to a Burke or a Brie mm-hmm. and, and understanding That's right. what you've got there. Yep. That meeting, as a result of that, it wasn't as if we had the meeting and we shook hands and then he handed over millions of dollars. Mm. But from that meeting, we knew then what we had to do and we then had to go and get a business case. So we yes. probably spent... I'm guessing now, so this is, you know, don't hold me to this, but it yeah. was probably $30,000, okay. maybe $40,000 on a consultant mm. to do a business case that really demonstrated what we got out of that conversation yeah. and some more staff time. So by the time we finalised all of that, mm. I think it would be pretty easy to say that we spent sixty to $70,000 yeah, right. on yep. a business case and staff time to put in that second time into yeah. another grant program. Yeah. Now, we finally got the money. Fantastic. We then built, and this is back in 2014, I think we opened that facility, we then built a facility that was almost $6 yeah. million and council put on put in probably less than a million dollars for that. Mm. So what a wonderful facility we have, but that was as a result of spending a lot of money in the yes. first place. It's almost like that risk versus gain Correct. type scenario. And some people can afford to do the risk versus gain and others unfortunately can't. Exactly right. And also you are risking public money. Yes. What's the chance of us getting a positive outcome mm. out of this? Oh, gee, let's weigh it up. Mm. And so you, you don't go and do all that lightly. It would be nice, and this is one of the messages we've certainly sent to this government, it would be really nice to see some uncontestable, some non-grant money flow through to councils. Now, one of the issues, as trivial as it may sound, one of the issues is mm. when you just hand over money each year on a certain percentage basis to a council – the pollies don't get to cut a ribbon. Yes. Now, I know that sounds trivial. It always gets back to the ribbon cutting, doesn't it? But I I understand it. They want to show how Mm. the money they've allocated is being used. Mm. Making the connection between this is state government money coming through. Yeah. We've said we'll find some projects to cut ribbons on if that's that's all it takes. That's right. But again, it's it's one of those messages that uh, your initial question was, is this where we get money from? Mm. Typically, you're right. Where money comes from typically is through grant processes, and again, lots of that money you think is going to come normal. It's normal mm. part of your operations, but you've still got to go through and make sure you put those grants in. Mm. And then you've got to acquit that money as well, which again, I don't have a problem with that. It's un- mm. it's reasonable to think that you've got to show where that money's been spent, yes. but it's more staff time to go through that process yeah. and actually demonstrate that. Oh, so yeah, so that was interesting. Rose Jackson, we've met with Rose Jackson before. Yep. The focus, actually, one of the things interesting out of the meeting with Rose Jackson was again, she talked about the budget and yeah. about how tight the budget is. That was the, the common message the, the, from the all the The common ministers. message sort of being passed across. Just make sure you mentioned everybody. <laughs> I, I, think very was, tight. <laughs> I think they had the script before yes, they, they met it. with us. But one of the things that was interesting is that Rose said they've got – I mean, she's got a big portfolio. Well, she must might have one of the biggest portfolios. Surely that's an extraordinary title, just to go through it again. Minister for Water, Housing, Homelessness, Mental Health, Youth and North Coast. Yeah. Why do they sort of throw and North Coast in there at the end? <laughs> that's right. So there's a few in there. <laughs> One of the things that Rose did talk about was that water is a big issue. Water security is a big issue. Now, she mm. said, I don't like picking out favourites or specifics, but in her opinion, Tamworth, Bathurst and Orange were three that she has to focus on for water security. 
because there's not a lot of security of water there? Or? That they are ones that are, are more likely. So okay. as much as we might say, oh, no, that's terrible, Dubbo misses out, it's almost a bit of a, a tick for Dubbo mm. that we've got good water security mm. at the moment. Those three, she needs to spend some time on making sure water security is addressed okay. in those areas. And those three areas are that aware sounds of that fair as enough, well. really, when you think about those areas. Yeah, yeah and, and I don't have a problem with that. You, you want to get as much as you can for your local area, but you also want to be fair and reasonable mm. because it's no good just being stupid about it and saying, I don't want anyone to get anything else. I want everything for Dubbo. Yeah. You, you need to be sensible and reasonable about it so that you are a better chance of getting yeah. things for Dubbo because you're not going to get everything. Well, from your perspective, it's, it, I can see the singularity of the focus, but from a minister's perspective, there is a broader focus, isn't there? They have to keep you know, thinking right. about that. And it would be silly for me to say to jump up and down and say, no, no, don't give anything to Bathurst, Orrington, Tenworth. We want everything for Dubbo mm. because we've obviously put ourselves in a position we don't need that. We want other things from mm. Rose, so mm. let's let her have those things on water security. Yes. What she did talk about was, so don't expect that, to be addressed in this budget. But housing, obviously, is a huge issue mm. and everyone's wanting to be aware of housing. So there might be something, I don't know what, there might yep. be something in this budget around housing. And again, that is what Rose sees as the absolute desperate short term that she's got to try and fix because it's not a short term solution housing no. so you've got to start addressing it in the short term so yeah. that was that was absolutely a focus from rose but again good talk to rose we gave her an update yeah. on our 3d printer toilet she, oh yeah, she's yeah. was she excited about that washing she, she was the look? last time i spoke to her about that she was very excited about that in addressing housing but we hadn't done the toilet at that stage mm. now that we've done the toilet uh, she was actually keen to hear about that, mm. how it was received, how it seemed to go, and very keen. She wants to hear about our first house that we built with yes, 3D printing. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, very interested there. And Janelle Saffin, the main reason I met with Janelle is that I had the Mayor of Lismore with me, and we'd oh, been yes. up for that recent yes. visit to Lismore. And I thought it was, or the Mayor of Lismore was pretty keen to catch up with his local member, but thought it might be relevant to have a chat to Janelle mm. as well. Yep. She has got a wealth of experience. Okay. She was elected as a member of the Legislative Council, so an MLC, mm. in the state government way back in 1995. Yeah, right. She spent eight years in that role. Then she moved from there and went across to the federal government. So state to federal. For state to federal. And she spent six years in the House of Reps there okay. in, in the federal government. Yep. And then she's now moved back from the federal government and she's now a member of the Legislative Assembly. All right. So she was an MLC first yeah, time. Yeah. She's now an MLA. And she's a member for Lismore now, and so she was elected back in yeah. 2019. So there she's be a lot of experience there. That is. So two different levels in state mm. and one at federal. So it was good to talk to her mm. just in general, mm. I suppose, about – I mean, Lismore certainly was a bit of the focus there mm. because of their flooding and that disaster recovery. But you've got someone with that much experience. It's always good to hear yeah. their advice in general. Get their insight on processes and procedures and And all she's that sort been of stuff. in government. She's been in opposition. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of experience mm. there. So, yeah, I actually quite enjoyed talking to Janelle. And oh, terrific. She, uh, she's got a good attitude about a whole range of things. Excellent. So that'll happen on Wednesday. And, of course, uh, Thursday, you then uh, attended the Regional City New South Wales board meeting um, in Parliament House. Now, this is a, a group that has some of the town uh, mayor groups there of Albury and Armadale and Bathurst, etc. Tamworth, you mentioned earlier. Now, you caught up here with uh, Wendy Tuckerman here as part of that. So how did the meeting go, first of all? Well, I'll, I'll go back. I will actually rattle off the places in regional cities because I think it is relevant. Mm. This is a group of 15 cities. Yeah. So in that group, we've got Albury, Armidale, Bathurst, Broken Hill, Coffs Harbour, Dubbo, obviously, right. Goulburn, Griffith, Lismore, Maitland, Orange, Queanbeyan, Tamworth, Tweed and Wagga. It's a good list. It is a good list. Mm. 
And I would say that this has probably grown up out of the old Evo cities. Yes, right. Okay. And Evo cities had seven cities in that initially, yeah, and yeah. that was a focus on marketing more than anything else, about marketing those Evo cities to mm. metropolitan Sydney. But we also used to have some meetings with those seven cities to just talk about things that we had in common, mm. common problems, common solutions, how do we deal with certain things. And I actually used to find those meetings absolutely relevant and mm. very productive. Mm. I was then out of local government for a little while when I came back, Evo cities had grown up, if you like, to yep. 15 cities. Yep. Yep. And that gave a, a bigger voice. Mm. And probably it presented some issues as well in that 15 cities maybe don't have as many things in common mm. as the seven cities used to, mm. but then you've got a, a bigger voice as mm. well. So ups and downs. Is, is that the main focus now for uh, for this group from the point of view of uh, creating more of a voice to parliament at, as an entity? We've got certainly the 15 cities, because there's enough in common, yes. we do get the opportunity to present some commonality to mm. government, to mm. parliament and New South Wales Parliament is the main one we deal with here, mm. so that you can have some discussions and with the board meeting we'll talk about some of the things that happened there, but mm. you do get the opportunity to say, look at the million people that we represent across these 15 cities, here are some things in common, here are some things we'd like to see addressed. Mm. So you probably have a stronger voice and a louder voice than if all those 15 cities individually mm. went and sat down with various ministers. So I think it is that stronger voice, that mm. bigger voice. That's an important part of it. But do also, you, Do you actually get ministers coming into your meeting as well? Or do you invite them as part of that discussion? Yeah, we do. In particular, ministers we might think might have some things that we, they might need to hear from us or we might need to hear from them. Yep. But also we do have discussions around common things and we'll talk about a couple of those things mm. as well mm. where you have some things that you've got in common that you might want to address and talk about. So I'll go to Wendy Tuckman first. Mm. I actually met with Wendy before the board meeting started. Even though Wendy's in opposition, it's still important to continue mm. those relationships with both sides of government. And yep. if we go back to the 3rd of June 2021, mm. there was a change of mayor at Dubbo Regional Council. Yep. And then, not long afterwards, on the 29th of June, so later in that same month, would have been Shelley Hancock at the time, right. served a performance improvement order on Dubbo Regional Council. Okay. So the Minister for Local Government serves a performance improvement order that serious. Yeah, right. So this That's, is, when was this again? This is back on end of June. This is, yeah, the 29th of June, 2021. Yep. Now, Hugh have a rare circumstance where a council is dismissed mm. and an administrator appointed. And the first step, well, no, probably not the first step, but one of the steps along the way is a performance improvement order. Mm. That's basically saying to a council, we've had a look at some of the things you've been doing. We're not really that impressed with what you've been doing. Here's some areas that you need to address. Mm. That's a performance improvement order. Make some changes there. Or, you know what? We might have to dismiss you. Yeah, wow. And that's different to when an administrator is appointed after an amalgamation, for example. When they did amalgamations, they'll often appoint administrators. Mm. So across the state in 2016, there were a number of administrators, but that wasn't a dismissal through a performance improvement order. Right, it was amalgamation. Right. So when we got elected, and remember we got elected in December 2021, yep. one of the first things that we were told about by our CEO was, by the way, you've currently got this thing hanging over your heads called a performance improvement order. Right. New council. Yep. A whole bunch, eight people who had never served on council before, mm. nine of us that had never served on double regional council, mm. and we've got this thing hanging over our heads, yep. basically saying it's it's dangling there, just be careful because you might be dismissed wow. soon into your turn. Straight in, straight out. That's Happy right. Days. 
Obviously, mm. one of the things that I wanted to do was make sure that I was on top of this. Obviously, mm. I was elected as mayor. Yep. She wanted to make sure council was running properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. an important part for her as a minister. She doesn't want one of her councils, no. if you like, 128 councils. Anybody, does it? No, that's right, 128 mm. councils. You want to make sure they're all performing at their peak. Yep. And certainly, it had been identified previously that it wasn't performing at its peak. Mm. So, mm. work through that process. On the 18th of May in 2022, that performance improvement order was lifted. And I did actually catch up with Wendy shortly after that point and said, thank you very much. That's great. And it was basically like, well done. Keep going in the same path. Keep up the good work. Mm, We don't want to be doing that to you again. that's right. Absolutely. And it's probably fair to say that once you've had a PIO put on your council, Mm. there's probably a bit of a scrutiny, a slightly high level of scrutiny on that council to make sure you continue behaving Mm. in Just keep one line, that group there. So anyway, it it was good to catch up with Wendy. Wendy did talk a little bit about code of conduct, about the perform or the changes that she'd started, if you like, in the code of conduct, because there are some hairs on the code of conduct as it stands at the moment. And some of those changes, I'll talk more about those if you like when we talk about country mayors and meeting there. But look, it was just a good general discussion, a bit of a catch up there. And again, important, you've got someone in opposition. Yes, still talk to them. They're still members of parliament. They can still have influence. You know the nature of recent politics. Uh, This group may not well be out and again in a couple of years and Wendy may be back in charge again. I noticed the fact here you you caught up with John Graham, MLC, Special Minister Minister of State, Minister for Roads, Minister for the Arts, Minister for Music, Nighttime Economy and Minister for Jobs and Tourism. It, is there anyone down there actually has just one portfolio? <laughs> treasurer. <laughs> yeah, the Treasurer. <laughs> There's a couple of interesting ones here that uh, this guy holds. Nighttime Economy. Yeah, That's a new one. I didn't realise that was even a, a portfolio. Well, it's probably more relevant to King's Cross than it is to Dubbo. Yeah, right. And I okay. think when they talk about the nighttime economy, yeah. they often talk about there. But look, nighttime economy is still relevant. And in yeah. fact, so this is now, we'll move into, we're now sitting down. So now sitting down, having the meeting, with and, this, and this guy, so John Graham's turned up to speak, has he? Correct. And this is not speaking at us, this is speaking with us. Okay. So regional cities, New South Wales, 15 councils on that. And of those... Most of them turn up to every meeting, either mm. physically or via video conference. I think mm. we had about five people join us by video conference, probably 20, 25 people sitting around the table, yep. and that's representing those 15 cities. Yep. Now, when I say with us, not at us, it is literally a U-shaped table. Yep. We invite a minister along, they come along and sit at the head of the U, mm. and it's a discussion. It yep. really is a two-way discussion. Yep. The minister might put forward some of their views or some things that are happening that might be relevant, we might ask some questions. Mm. And so it's a, a good chance, usually about half an hour, just that back and forth discussion, yeah. really valuable. In the for old the minister. days they call that chewing the fat. Chewing the fat, exactly right. Yep. The minister pointed out, and this is absolutely what we, we want to hear, mm. that he likes the idea of this group as almost a bit of a sounding board. Mm. He's got some things he's thinking about, he's got some direction how would this work in with the 15 cities? Mm. It would be harder for him to have 15 individual conversations Mm. than one conversation with the 15 cities. So the ministers that get it, get that it's worthwhile having those discussions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that can make their job easier. And we can talk basically very frankly and say, this is a good idea, this isn't a good idea. Take that on board as you go forward. So was there anything particular that uh, you felt as though you got out of this discussion with him? Well, one of the things that you also get a bit of a a snippet about is Mm where they might be headed, what direction, especially with the new government. Mm. One of the things that was music to my ears, certainly from a Dubbo perspective, but certainly I think most people around the room were quite happy with, was that from a tourism perspective, in wearing that particular one of his many hats, from a tourism perspective, it was really a focus that he wants to see for 
tourism experiences rather than tourism destinations. I like that. And one of the things that we have seen over recent years, and when I say recent years, probably over the last decade or more, has been the fact that you talk about destination marketing, destinations. Mm. Destination New South Wales has been on every single bus in Sydney. Exactly right. Mm. Now, one of the things there is that you can look at the picture of something and if that picture matches up pretty well when you go and visit that site, mm. you didn't gain much out of it. But if it's an experience you're talking mm. about, so if you get to go and see a giraffe and then feed that giraffe a carrot, mm. that's a pretty exciting experience. Mm. If you get to go to the old Dubbo jail and mm. actually go into the solitary confinement room, and I find this really freaky, yes. go into the solitary confinement room and imagine this room where you put your hand 10 centimetres in front of your you face, can't you can't see, see it. Yes. And the noise of people are blocked out. And then imagine someone, for punishment, mm. maybe because they had a mental health issue, mm. put in this room for two days yes. and then brought back out. Oh. If you, you didn't, didn't have, have some a mental, mental health issue. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, didn't have a problem beforehand. You didn't have a problem afterwards. So yes. that experience, yes. that's irreplaceable. Yes. So when John started talking about experiences, he wants tourism to be all around experiences. Mm. I went, absolutely, this yes. is music to my ears, fantastic. Absolutely. So that that's good. But again, yeah, yeah. that's not official yet. Mm. This is where he's headed. This is where he's thinking. So again, you know about a bit of that experience going forward. So mm. how can we tie into that? What can mm. we do to tie into the direction of yep. the department? Well, well Dubbo's perfectly placed, isn't it? Oh, we have yeah. so many experience opportunities here. Yeah, Wellington Caves, going yeah. down to Wellington Caves. And again, you can see pictures of what's in Wellington Caves, but when you're going down there, the air's a bit mm. thicker. It's mm. a bit moister as you mm. go, walk down or mm. go down some of the stairs into the caves. Yeah. All that experience. As you say, don't just go there. Experience it. Mm. Go and enjoy all the elements of it that it has to offer. And experience often has smell, often has sound. It's yep. not just a picture. Yes. And that's, I think we're very well served for all oh, that. Brilliant. So that, that's exciting. So that was a, a good meeting. And again... It's the first time John's come along and talked to regional seasons New South Wales. So yep. he now yep. knows about the group and understands more about the group. So it's very important. Fantastic. And you caught up then with uh, the Honourable Tara Moriarty, Minister for Agriculture, Minister for Regional New South Wales and the Minister for Western New South Wales. So her role is very important too because she is a minister specifically for our area. Exactly right. And that is spot on. We've talked to Tara before with Regional Seas New South Wales. We've had meetings there before. We've also had meetings here in Dubbo with Tara with the Alliance of Western Councils, which is another group that Dubbo's a part of. Oh, yes. Uh, so I've, I've met Tara on a number of occasions. It was good to see Tara again. Mm. And again, probably the main messaging from Tara was around the grants that we saw work well, the different programs that we saw work well across the various regional cities. Mm. What do we want to see Again, and again, she did say that it mightn't be called the same, but mm. what worked well, how did they tie in with what we're trying to do going forward? Yep. And again, it was a good opportunity to talk to about those same things we talked to the, the Treasurer about. But again, sometimes talking to different ministers and yeah. having the same message, when they get in and talk about it in Cabinet, yep. then those same discussions occur. So yeah. I think that's important as well. One of the things that uh, we talk about, frank and fearless advice, one of the things that we certainly talked to Tara about, which we have mentioned to her before, mm. was this idea about a concierge service. We want to get people into regional locations to fill some of the job vacancies we have, lots of mm. skilled jobs. And the government, the last government talked about it, this government has also talked about it, maybe less so, mm. filling specific jobs and they're calling them key workers. Okay. So they're saying that yep. teachers, nurses and police are key workers they're three areas that the government employs people in. So they're saying, we're going to focus on key workers. Mm. 
the point that we've made previously, and we made again when we spoke to Tara, was a barista is a key worker. Mm. An accountant is a key worker. A solicitor mm. is a key worker. Absolutely. If you want to get a teacher to a regional location and they go out and spend a weekend there mm. and they can't get their latte with almond milk or mm. they can't find some professional services or they can't go to the cinema because there's no staff there to work. That's right. Every employee in a regional location is a key worker. It's yep. not just the government paid work. It's workers. all interlinked, isn't it? All interlinked, that's yeah. right. One, of the, So we've got a program, Regional Seasons New South Wales, that we've designed that we think can help the government do all that. We mm. need money from the government to do it. We've mm. pitched that before. We haven't been successful before. We'll pitch it again. Yeah. But what they're doing to address this is what they're calling their concierge service. Now, in my opinion, it's not a very good idea. Right. And we expressed that again to Tara. Yep. Officially from Regional Seasons New South Wales, we've got a yep. program. We think it's much better. Yep. But what they're doing, and this is where I think the department has got it wrong, what they're doing with the, the concierge service is they're trying to make sure that when people re move to regional locations, they stay there because they have such a wonderful experience. And one of the questions we asked was, do you have data to show that when people move to regional locations, they don't last and they move away? Mm. Well, they didn't have any data to show that. Right. What they're doing with the concierge service is, you decide you're living in Sydney, you're going to move to Dubbo. Yep. We'll hold your hand when you move to Dubbo, Mark, and we'll help you find a rental and we'll help you find a sporting club to go and play some sport and a service club mm. to join. We'll help you show where you go and do your shopping at each week. And these things are things that I've seen no feedback ever mm. that people have identified as problems. Yep. The main problem is people discovering that regional locations exist. Mm. So marketing into Dubbo, showing the people that jobs exist. I talk to people all the time when I'm in Sydney, cab drivers, people I, I see at various functions. Would you think about moving to Dubbo? Oh, I wouldn't be able to get a job out there, would I? Mm. Why not? Oh, well, I'm a, an accountant. I, there'd be no jobs for accountants out there, would there? Mm. Well, what do you think there are jobs in? Oh, farmers. Mm. Well, 2.5% of our employment is in farming. So, yeah. sure, there's jobs in farming, but, but there's, there's more 97 jobs. 97.5% in other jobs. Exactly yes. right. So, this is the problem. Mm. We don't see a problem. We have no evidence at all to say that someone moves to a regional location and then they go, oh, I don't like this, and they move away. Yep, yep. Once they move, they stay. They yep. stick. So with all those things you talked about, people generally find that stuff themselves anyway. Oh, easily. So we don't think the concierge service is very good. Yep. They're spending money on that. Do that if you like. Knock mm. yourself out. But we've got another program over here mm. that will show and advertise jobs in metro areas yes. that are available in regional locations. Yep. We think that will have a much bigger oh, impact. Sounds perfect. And we actually had a presentation by the Regional Australia Institute at our Regional Cities New South Wales meeting. Okay. And at that, one of the things they've got is a program that's called Move to More. And in that program, okay. typically what they're doing is trying to get people to regional locations across the nation with yep. a focus on New South Wales. Yep. But part of that is they've got a job platform they're building mm. to try and do that. So it's that same sort of thing. Mm. So anyway, Tara heard the messaging from us. But again, it's important just to keep those Absolutely, conversations yeah, going. Yeah, put the, get the conversation out there for them to discuss. interesting little one that actually came up there from the meeting, um, which is a business case put forward in regards to the Regional Transport Pinch Point Program. Now, I think we mentioned this quite a while ago in regards to it. So this is, as a group, uh, I think this is part of the collective advantage of being together. Look, I don't want to steal your thunder here, Matt, but uh, so, so talk us through what is the Pinch Point Program to remind listeners what this is. And you asked spot on. This is one of the powers of 15 cities working mm. together. We all know in our cities there are places that might be areas that are congested for transport or areas that might be impacted by weather events mm. and they have a severe impact on our transport. 
The problem is that sometimes they'll be in our LGA, but we can't spend the money. We can't justify the expenditure of money because it's not really having such a big impact on our LGA. But the transport of goods might go through five different LGAs mm. and there might be a small impact on each LGA. But when you take all those together, there's a huge impact on the transport cost of those products going mm. from A to B. Yep. But each individual council just can't afford to do that. Or it might even be between some of those cities. So it might be mm. in Narromine, for example, there might be a major pinch point, but yep. Narromine can't justify the expenditure and Dubbo can't because it's not even in our LGA. Yep. What we did as a collective was we went to the last state government and we put a proposal to say we'd like some money for a business case, about $400,000, mm. for a business case to look at the state yep. and the transport from regional locations through to port, for example, or even just within regional locations, yep. and look at a pinch point program to say where are the locations that are slowing down this yep. transport movement or costing more money yeah. with the movement of freight from, from A to B. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. So the last government said, yes, we agree, $400,000, now go and do that. So this was really, at the meeting we had on Thursday, mm. was an update from the consultants we engaged to do that. Mm. And there was a couple of things quite fascinating out of that. First thing they said was already they've identified 103 pinch points oh, okay. across the state, yeah, right, across right. regional locations. So yep. straight away you go, well, that's great. There's obviously some there. It wasn't yeah. us imagining it. Yes. And again, they did make the point that the freight companies don't care about LGA boundaries. Mm. They've just got to get their freight that's from That's right. If I got my truck, I'd probably go through seven or eight. Absolutely mm. right. So that's an important part of it. The other part that I was fascinated by mm. was that you've got some spatial telematics now. Spatial telematics. Sounds good. GPS. Talk. GPS, oh, basically. Okay, there we go. GPS. Okay. In, I was in, about to say, what is spatial telematics? So they've got some GPS devices fitted in various transport trucks. Right. Not all of them. Are these the newer trucks? and Mainly newer the newer cars, trucks. Maybe. And mainly the larger freight companies. Yes. And so if you had to put a percentage on it, maybe 20% of the trucks we're talking about have got this. Okay. But the spatial telematics refers to the idea that you can take this GPS data, consolidate it, hmm. so that you can then get areas where you can see extra congestion. Oh. When you go to something like Google Maps yep. on your phone maybe, you'll see, I want to go from A to B, and you'll see different colours on that map hmm. that are showing some congested points. Now, that comes from... Basically, the phone, the, the phone movement. So various right, phones right. are moving, and that's a bit of clever work in the background using metadata yep. that shows this area is congested. So if you go at eight o'clock in the morning yep. in Sydney, oh no, I don't want to go that way because it's congested. Is I'll this go the sort this of way. stuff that would feed into live traffic and things like that, or well, the telematics doesn't, but the data right. we can get out of all our consultant can get yep. out of it refers not so much to that metadata I just talked about with say yep. Google Maps, yep. but specifically to these trucks. So you could obviously then identify the pinch points. That's one of the ways. Because right. it's only 20% of the trucks and there's maybe a little bit of bias in that because it's maybe the larger freight companies, it's not comprehensive. But I was pretty impressed with the data mm, alone yeah, from that. Yeah, yeah. So Transport for New South Wales has got that data. Yep. These consultants that we've engaged are able to have access to that data. And mm. this is all very new. Mm. So they're looking at that. And then they're doing interviews with various councils. They're looking at maps. So there's a lot of work they're mm. doing. I mean, they're being paid $400,000. So mm. you expect them to do a Absolutely fair bit of work. Absolutely should be a serious uh, outcome from this, I'd imagine, based it, on serious money. Yeah, exactly right. So what will happen from this? So this is really just an update. Mm. What will happen from that is then once they're identified, there'll be some approximate dollar figures put around that. Then it'll be our job to go back to government and say, here are the 103, for example, mm. pinch points identified. Yep. Here are the most important ones out of those. Yep. And here are the costs associated with that. Yep. We probably think this is a 
15-year program maybe okay. to say here are the areas that you should be looking at yeah. improving over the next 15 years mm. to give you, excuse the pun, a roadmap yes. of where yes. to spend your Very money good. Very clever. <laughs> going forward. So in general, yeah. we're doing a bit of the work for the state government, yeah. but sometimes you've got to be proactive and well, do well, that. In many ways, you've suddenly become a consultancy group for the state government. Exactly right. And if we can make it easy, and that's yeah. the thing, make it easy for the state government to spend money to yeah. do things. If we can do all that, then happy yeah. days. So and put into the areas where we need to be put into. Yeah, that's right. So it was quite an interesting presentation, and I found some of that data in the background interesting. But mm. again, progressing well. It'll probably be November before we see that final report, which we'll then present to government. Okay. And then the, the big challenge, the $400,000 was the easy part. Mm. The big challenge, because when you start talking about Roadworks and money for that. Oh boy, you start more than four hundred thousand. That's right. You start to about millions just yes. roll off easily. But look, if I had to put a number on, I wouldn't be surprised if what we come up with is easily a billion or more dollars wow. of expenditure over the next 10, 15 years. But at least, as you say, you've created a roadmap. Now, Matt, uh, again uh, down there in Sydney on the Friday. So that was all Thursday. Now on Friday, you attended the country mayor's meeting. Um, now, the country mayor's meeting, is this, uh, this is a different operation altogether? Because I'm imagining here you're talking about all the country mayors, and so this is more like a conference rather than a meeting, or how would you put it? Yeah, this is a little bit different. There are 80 councils that are a member of country mayors. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. did start off very small country mayors, where it was basically looking at the very small councils in regional areas because they felt they didn't have a strong enough, loud enough voice Mm. in government areas. And it's kind of grown a little bit from that, but it's still quite effective. Mm. So typically we'll go to Parliament House each quarter. There's a a theatreette in Parliament House. And so you do sit down like a conference style where you'll have the the mayors and the GMs from those councils. And Mm. again, not all 80 will attend every single time, but Mm. I know I try and get to as many as I possibly can. Mm. And so you'll sit there and then you'll have various ministers invited to come along and and present to you. So I'll run through this quickly. So essentially... We, we sat down there, first thing in the morning, about 20 past eight, you start. The Honourable Penny Sharp, MLC, Minister for Climate Change, Minister for Energy, Minister for the Environment, Minister for Heritage, gave a presentation to us. Yes. Uh, that went through, again, talking about a whole range of areas there. Then we had Tara Moriarty, who obviously spoke to us the day before, but she mm-hmm. gave a presentation as well. Yep. Again, some good issues there. Minister for Western New South Wales, very relevant for some of those in the room. Yep. Tim Crackenthorpe was on the agenda, but he had a couple of issues earlier on in the week, which oh. means he's no longer a minister. Oh, so he'd been a naughty boy. He'd been a naughty boy. He didn't declare or didn't disclose some information around some property holdings uh, from his family. The old non-disclosure gets him again. Yeah, that's There's right. There's a few so of those over the history He didn't books, come along, there? as you can imagine. No, no. Then we had our local member, Dougal Saunders, came along, leader oh, of the Nationals. So, yep. again, a few presentations and a, and a few other discussions that we had there. Yep. They're a, a, a good event. I, I've got a lot of time for country mayors, but it is different to that style of regional cities because it is more a presentation style mm. rather than a discussion. Sure, there's questions afterwards, but it's it's what I like about regional cities is mm. you, you're having this really good discussion with a minister. Yep. This is more a presentation with yep. a bit of Q&A at the but end of it also as the mayor too, you're staying on the forefront of what's happening uh, within state government level too, aren't you? So you're getting all the information firsthand there and then. Yeah, and again, you've got some of the ministers, some of the opposition. Wendy Tuckerman yeah. presented. She talked, again, similar to the discussion I had the day before around mm. code of conduct and some reform there. I will mention one thing, code of conduct. One of the big issues with code of conduct is pretend you and I are counsellors mm-hmm. and you do something that I don't like or I do something you don't like mm-hmm. and hopefully it's a bit more than you don't like or something a bit more serious. <laughs> code of conduct can be used a bit frivolously sometimes. Yes, right. But the issue is if I lodge a code of conduct on you mm. or if anyone lodges a code of conduct, it goes to the CEO. 
Now, the CEO deals with us as councillors every single day. And the CEO will have no favourites. He deals with all councillors absolutely even-handedly and straight down the line with no bias whatsoever. The problem is, if I lodge a code of conduct on you, it goes to the CEO. And the CEO, the first thing the CEO has to do is look at it and say, is this a frivolous complaint? Is this a vexatious complaint? Does it need to go further? Is it really serious? Mm. No, it's not. And then you inform the person who makes the complaint, I'm not taking this any further. There's not enough seriousness in what you've complained about mm. to say there's something in it. Yep. Or the CEO says, yes, I think there's something to answer there. Yep. We need to pass it on to our independent panel, pick someone from that, and then there's straight away a cost just mm. for that person to have a look at it and make a decision about whether or not it is worthwhile going further so are again. They external group outside of council? External. There's a panel that you have that okay. you pick someone from the panel. You might rotate through it, whatever, yep. but you pick someone. But just for them to have an overview, that'll cost you money, maybe okay. five, $6,000. Yeah, right. Then if it's more serious than that, then there's a further cost for a fuller investigation. Mm. The CEO doesn't want to incur costs on council, mm. but he doesn't also want to shut down no. legitimate complaints. Yep. It puts him in a tough position given the fact that he's probably going to have any of these complaints about councils he's dealing with every day. So mm. if I lodge one on you, the CEO looks at it and says, no, nah, that's frivolous. Mm. I get the message back from the CEO. Sorry, Matthew, not taking any further. Mm. That was a, a frivolous complaint. You lodge one on me and then, oh, yeah, that might need to go a bit further. I'll pass it up the chain and have it investigated. Pass up the chain – some steps happen, and mm. then suddenly I find out that there's a complaint made against me. I say, to the CEO, hold on, I've got this complaint from Mark against me. You sent that up the chain. You didn't mm. send mine up the chain. You're showing bias there. Mm. No, no, yours wasn't worthy of that. Yours was frivolous, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It puts the CEO in a very tough spot. Mm. Absolutely. Where I know some CEOs, they say, I just pass every complaint up the chain because yeah, right. I don't want to be yep. making the initial assessment because it puts me in a tough spot. Other ones say, unless it's really obvious, I knock it back because I don't want to incur that cost to council. Mm. So that's one of the reforms, who you actually send yeah, that initial yeah. complaint to. And how that process works. And there yeah. are, we're certainly not in this situation, but there are councils I know where they would get 100 complaints a month. And most of those are vexatious. Most of those are just trying to make life uncomfortable for someone. Mm. And you don't, there's no information that comes through about complaints being made against a certain person, which is fair enough. Mm. But we do report on the actual number of complaints received. Mm. So then that puts a little bit of air of doubt around mm. the council. So it might go through to a council meeting to say, in the last year, we had 10 complaints made against councillors. Mm. Oh, really? What were they about? Well, they didn't go any further. Oh, really? Oh, why'd you knock those back? So yeah. it's a pretty tough situation. But again, I, I, I think that's okay because otherwise you could make them look bad. Yep. Oh, councillor Mark Barnes had 50 complaints made against him. They're all thrown out. Mm. But someone goes, oh, you know what? Where there's smoke, there's fire. There must have been something in those. No, it could have just been someone who yeah. was targeting Mark. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so they're looking at trying to create some clearer guidelines here for the CEOs in regards to follow? Or Well, Wendy Tuckerman did talk about the fact that in her term of government, one of the things she was trying to do was reform the Code of Conduct. Yep. Didn't get that finished in time. The new government, yes, hopefully there is a reform process okay. there. I think there'd be two ways that I'd look at, certainly. The first thing would be you just take all staff mm. and all councillors out of that process of complaints. Even mm. for me, if someone wants to complain about the CEO, mm. they lodge a code of conduct with me. Mm. So again, that puts me in a tough That's position. Right, yes. I work with the CEO every day. So, oh, gee, I don't want to go and lob this on him. Mm. I'll, I'll let it slide. Or no, mm. I don't like the CEO. I'll go and stick it into him. Yeah, great. Someone's lodged one. I'll, I'll take that up the chain straight away. Mm. So the first thing I would say is you just have an independent panel, whether it's employed by the state government, yep. wherever it is, and you have a code of conduct, you lodge to those yep. in 
independent, unbiased panel that yep. have got no relationship whatsoever. Or you just lodge it straight with the Office of Local Government. You yep. know, have a, a process, first of all, and then maybe you have something where if there is a vexatious complainer, if you've got, for example, I don't know, three, three strikes, mm. you have three complaints that you make that don't go any further. Yep. Then maybe it's time to have a look. Then you're now a vexatious complainer and you've now got to pay for the cost of mm. any of these, for mm. example. A bit like a, a, a captain's challenge. You know, yep. If it's successful, you yep. retain your challenge. If it's unsuccessful, yep. then you just get a strike against your name. That's right. Yes, so yes, that yes. type of thing maybe. But, but again, this is up mm. to the government to go yeah. through. We'll certainly give feedback about that. It'll be interesting to see how that sort of pans out. Yeah. So anyway, country mayors, another good meeting. And one of the things that was good actually, when you do have these presentations – you certainly get that presentation, but the minister, you might be able to grab them or the MP, mm. you might be able to grab them afterwards. Mm. I chat to Dougal all the time, but I did have a bit of a chat to Dougal. Mm. Uh, Bronnie Taylor was there. She's a deputy leader. Yep. Had a quick chat to her. And so just little conversations like that. But Penny, I did want to have a chat to her. Mm. We talked last week about the fact that we haven't joined the Coalition of Renewable Energy Mayors. Right. So that's a, a group that Dubbo Regional Council voted not to join. Right. Is there a reason for that or...? Look, uh, why councillors vote certain ways, then uh, I can't tell you why sure. each councillor votes a certain way, but certainly they did feel like there was a little bit of unrest with the terms of reference for that, okay. and there didn't seem to be the excitement and seizing the opportunity mm. for the renewable energy zones that Dubbo might have, for example. Yeah. So I suppose some of the councillors were a bit worried about a spokesperson for Coalition of Renewable Energy Mayors mm. speaking on behalf of Dubbo, effectively, mm. when they didn't align with Dubbo's views. Yes, again, because our views are very strongly for. Exactly right. And the yeah. opportunity, this is absolutely a once-in-a-generation opportunity for okay. our community. So, th again, you've got 10 votes on council. Each council will vote the way they want to vote mm. based on their own reasons. But yeah. that was some of the discussion, okay. if you like. But I, I just want to grab Penny and have a quick chat to her, which I did as yep. she left. I just walked beside her. She went back up to her office and talked about the fact that we hadn't joined and I didn't want her to think that was in any way, shape or form a reflection on our lack of desire mm. for mm. a renewable energy zone to progress very well in Dubbo. Yep. What was good was she said, yes, I was already aware of that. So okay. she switched on enough to know oh, what's yep. happening and how it worked. But again, she liked hearing it from me as well just yeah. to – be confirmed. And I'd already sent her a letter, but I imagine she gets thousands of letters, so yeah. I, I can't imagine that that had been top of her pile. But they're the opportunities. Again to have a chat. Yeah, That's right. Absolutely. In Parliament House, you, you can get those opportunities yeah. to run into people and say good day. Yeah. Very quickly, Matt, a couple of quick ones to uh, finish off today. Um, first one here the Community Services Fund, which we uh, discussed there either last week or the week before. This is whereby Council has now decided that uh, instead of having two separate community funds where people can apply for to get grants. Um, it's all been pulled together as one. The grant total being $150,000. Uh, sounds like one of those game shows. $150,000 for the winning prize. Um, but it looks as though the first round is about to, or it looks like it probably has actually already opened up. So people in the community can now um, jump out there and get a proposal together for a community services fund grant. Um $75,000 we're looking for the first time around, or is it more? Well, just to clarify here, the $150,000 you mentioned is the total amount for all applications that come in. So, oh, so, oh, well, there you go. So, so it's not so I can't grand put my application for that $150,000 for myself? <laughs> well, you, you could put it in, but you probably wouldn't be successful in that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. So we've got the new grants program, which is much better, much simpler for people. Yes. One program only rather than two. Yep. 
and it's twice a year, so $75,000 each time, except... Except... For the first time... Sounds one, like a one-time offer. I'm being one offered right only, here. One time only. Yes. Because of the complication of the two programs that we have talked about previously, mm-hmm. the last year was undersubscribed. Wow. So we've rolled that over into yep. the first one for this year. Okay. So the $75,000 that is open at the moment yeah. actually is $120,000. Hey. So uh, that is a bit like of last Tuesday night's Powerball, whatever it was, isn't that's it? Right. So it's, it's, it's escalated, jackpotted. There it is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I like that better. It hasn't rolled over. It's jackpotted. Jackpotted to $125,000. That's right. So there's $120,000. $120,000, 120, sorry. $120,000 yep. and $120,205.74. Oh, there it is. Yes. 120 round number. And op- applications are now open, as you said. Absolutely yes. right. How do people apply for this? You can only apply... Via Smarty Grant. Oh, as you in S M A R T I E. Almost S M A R T Y Grant. Oh, okay. G R A N T. If you Smarty that, as opposed to the chocolate. Not Smarty the chocolate. That's what I'm saying. As yeah. opposed to the chocolate. As opposed to the chocolate. That's yes. right. So if you just go and Google that, and yeah. you'll see that you can put in a grant. It's a it's a portal if you like. Okay. And you put in a grant application via that. We don't accept applications via paper, email, fax. They're all yep, out all now. All gone. It's really about the efficiency of the process, mm. so we want to make it as efficient as possible. Yep. So put your applications in. Yep. There's 120 grand, and those applications close on Monday, the 31st of August. Well, get to it. That's right. And we have people to put in applications for a couple of hundred dollars, mm. 500, a thousand, thousands of dollars. Mm. Put the application in for the amount that you need to do something in your not-for-profit community yep. organisation. And keeping in mind... Is it, is coming from the me here, is there a tip that you can maybe say to the community groups that they should really try to focus on? One of the things that I certainly see and that I love is mm. when we give a certain amount of money and it turns into a whole lot more benefit. Mm. So if we give a group $1,000 and they demonstrate in their application that that's going to turn into thousands of dollars, mm. $10,000 worth of benefit mm. to the community, yep. they're the ones that I love and I get excited about. Mm. If someone puts in a grant for $1,000 and it does something that returns $1,000 or yep. maybe even a bit less than that, yep. then it's not as good for the community. Because again, we're taking community money here. Mm, absolutely. We want to see the most bang for the community's buck mm. in this money that's given out. So that's probably my tip. Now, the, the process that occurs is that those Smarty Grant applications go through they're assessed by our staff against the criteria yep. and essentially from all of that recommendation to then put forward to council, council makes the final decision. Right. So we we would look through the applications if we were concerned or we weren't sure about ones or we wanted to see ones that didn't make it because yep. we get a list of ones that are recommended to be approved yep. and ones that are recommended to be not approved. Okay. So councillors might say, oh, hold on, this one here, let me have another look at that, let mm. me read that. So we might look at, through all those in great detail, mm. but if the information that comes through looks pretty good and looks like it basically complies to all the conditions. Yep. We might say, yep, that's great, let's approve those. But I think that's the thing we want to see bang for mm. our buck. Is it really Beautiful. the most so important? So the 31st part. of August is the cutoff date, and you've got to go to Smarty, that is S M A R T Y, Grants. Is that right? Grants. Grant. Money Grant. Money Grant. So, so you go to that online and you can uh, just sort of Google search through there or flick through there on the, the drop downs. And if you're someone that isn't great with computers, not yep. great with how you might go through and do all that, absolutely feel free to make a call through the council and we'd have some of our staff to help guide you yeah, through that process if you need to. Now, Matt, your uh, Merrill memo this week uh, talked about the removal, the removal of fluoride out of the water. Now, wait a minute. 
Are we going to remove the fluoride? Haven't we got to removed the fluoride's already been removed from the water. We're, we're trying to get it back in, aren't we? What's we, going on here? We are trying to get it back in. That's exactly right. And I've written this quite deliberately. No, I'm not trying to get fluoride out of the water. I want fluoride back in the water as soon as Excellent. possible. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not an anti-fluorider. It's all the science there to say that it's a good idea to have fluoride Agreed. in the water. But I have received some emails from a few people, probably five or six mm. people, to say, well, fluoride's not in our water now. Mm. Don't put it back in. And there's some people who have a strong belief about mm-hmm. the n- not the need for fluoride in the water. Mm. What I did was I, I just thought, well, let's have a look. It's a democracy we live in. If people don't want it, what's the process? Mm-hmm. So I went and had a look at the process to have fluoride removed from the water. There's no real process outlined from New South Wales Health to have fluoride taken out of your water. Once it's in there, right. a bit like Hotel California, yeah. it never leaves. <laughs> and I thought, It's an interesting analogy. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that's probably not right from yep. a democratic point of view. Yep. So it took a bit of time and I had some staff working as well as myself researching yeah. it. And I found a kind of way that you might be able to approach it. Hmm. So I wrote my article this week around that. Now, right. just a few things that are of interest, I thought. 96% of residents in this state have access to fluoridated water. So 96%. Yeah, so, so we're suddenly falling in the 4%, by the way. Well, well, no, we are in the 96% because we're meant to have fluoride in the water. Yeah, we're meant to have yeah, that. Right. Other yeah. side. Yes. So, so in across the state, of all the water treatment supplies, all the mm. potable water that's out there, 96% of that has or should have fluoride mm. in the water. Yes. If you look at Dubbo, or go back a little bit, Beaconsfield in Tasmania, they were the oh. first community to have water fluoridated. So that right. was in 1953. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yass was the first place in New South Wales. Dubbo has water. And again, I couldn't find the gazette for this, right. but I found some research that showed that mm. it looked like it was right. 1963, Dubbo commenced fluoride in our water. Yeah, right. Okay. There was the, the act this sits under is the Fluoridation of Public Water Supplies Act 1957, which, by the way, we are currently in breach of Mm. because we're not putting fluoride in Mm. the water. And 6B, number one of the Act, stipulates that an approved water supply authority, which Dubbo is, Mm. cannot discontinue fluoridation unless given permission by the Secretary. So the fact that we're not having water, Mm. sorry, fluoride in our water now. We are breaking the rules. We are actually in, in breach of that Act. So I couldn't find the 1963 Gazette, Mm. but I did find... Government Gazette number 121, which was issued on the 20th of August 1980, right. which th- sanctioned the newly amalgamated council, the Dubbo City Council it was in the day, to continue to fluoridate Dubbo's water supply. So that's all fine, all above board, yep. away we go. Yep. How do you get rid of fluoride in the water if you don't want it? Mm. The Act doesn't really highlight that process, but essentially, given the fact that you're given permission by the Secretary... To revoke that or to remove fluoride, the secretary would have to revoke the direction to put fluoride in the water. Why would they do that? How would they do that? Well, you'd need a recommendation by the Fluoridation of Public Water Supplies Advisory Committee. Right. If that recommendation was made, and why would they make that recommendation? You yep. might have strong public support. So you might have a group of people in Dubbo who put a petition out to say, let's remove fluoride. Yep. They would then send that. They might go via council. Then yep. on their behalf, we might send that to the secretary or to the Fluoridation of Public Water Supplies Committee. They might then make a recommendation to the secretary to remove fluoride. But it's absolutely, incredibly unlikely they would make that because New South Wales Health staunchly supports water fluoridation 
and they're doing everything they can to try and get that last 4% across yep. the line to add fluoride. Yep. So if you did get a petition that was successful, if you did get council on board to be successful mm. and send it off to the committee, if they were successful, mm. then it's still unlikely that the secretary would mm. sign off on that. Mm. But that's the best I can do in terms of a process yep. to remove fluoride. So yep. as much as we live in a democracy, yes. as much as there are opportunities for people to have their say in a democracy. Yep. You've got to understand there is a process about all of that. And at the end of the day, you may not get what you want anyway. Uh, correct. Now, New South Wales Health might look at, they might get perspectives from a whole range of different groups, mm. their own offices, uh, affiliated agencies, mm. dental experts might come into it. The mm. committee obviously would come into it. But realistically, I don't think they would say, no. take fluoride out of the water. No. What they say? Buckley's chance in hell or something? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Had a bit of a, uh, a question here from one of the listeners uh, during the week here too, Matt, about uh, the conditions of the, the roads coming into town. Um, I suppose the question boss falls around this. Does council have any obligation to do the clean-up of uh, the rubbish that sits on the side of the, the road leading into town on those highways? Well, obligation is an interesting word. Mm. I would say that we want to do everything we can to present our city in the best possible way, mm. but it does come down to budgetary constraints. We don't employ people to pick up rubbish from the sides of the road as you're coming into, mm. into the city, the various entrances into Dubbo and Wellington. Yep. So it's not something we don't have someone who goes out and picks up rubbish. There are some great community groups who do some clean-up work. Uh, along the river, there's regular groups who do some clean-up work, picking yep. up rubbish, that type of thing. Yep. Clean-up Australia Day, there are people who go and do that sort of thing. But we just simply don't have the money mm. to go and employ people to do that. Now, there has been an interesting change in our entrances at, uh, there was a time that we just said we don't have the money in our budget available to go and even do the mowing of some of those entrances coming into mm. the city. And there were some people who gave us some feedback around that that just thought the entrances looked a bit shabby and could we change that. As part of our budget approval that occurred in June this year, there was some money. Councillors said, yes, we think it is important enough. So we reallocated some finances to actually put some money into mowing those entrances, cleaning mm. up those entrances. Mm. It may well be possible now that we've started that, because that's mm. now started this financial year, maybe that's exposed some litter, some yep. rubbish that's been yep. left around some of those Absolutely. entrances. Absolutely, could yeah. be part of it, yes. But, I, but no, so the simple answer is no, we don't employ people to do that. I'd encourage community groups to do that. I, I wouldn't encourage people to stop on the side of the road and just get out, a bit mm. dangerous maybe, but doing yep. it as a group and having the correct controls in place mm. certainly would help that particular process. Is, is this potentially maybe something then that uh, for for those who are concerned about the nature of the rubbish on the side of the road, you know, when you're talking about budgets and setting up budgets for the start of the year, we've only just talked about the recent budget, is this maybe a proposal then that people could put forward to council to say, please try to find some money in the in the budget there to do roadside cleanup? Absolutely right. And it would be a tough ask for all the demands on our budget. Mm. It'd be a tough ask to justify having someone that picked up rubbish. Mm. But absolutely right. That's exactly what you'd do. You'd, you'd approach councillors, you'd send some emails into councillors, put some submissions in to say, please do this. Maybe any spare funds you have or future budget, whatever it might be. Yep. As it stands right now today, if someone said, would you support that? Again, you want to see all the data first before you go out and support something, but mm. I would ha find it hard to justify employing someone to pick up rubbish as mm. such. Mm. There'd be other ways that I'd encourage the community to be involved. I did do that April Fool's Day joke this year, of you course. Did. to the say DNA one, that's right. DNA yeah. testing for rubbish, because the other thing I'd say to people is, please Don't drop stop, the rubbish. Yeah, stop throwing yeah, rubbish out the window. 
that it, maybe a campaign doing that would be more mm, effective mm. than employing someone to go Keep and pick Australia up Australia beautiful. Remember that campaign? Absolutely right. That's hey, bring it thing. back, I say. Yeah. All right, mate, it's time for the Limerick of the Week. So, what have you got for us this week? It was tough, actually. I did think about doing one about our Japanese students leaving, but yes. maybe I'll save that Limerick for when we've got Japanese students yes. from Dubbo going across yes. to Minakamo. But the biggest event this week, I thought, was our international aerial firefighting yeah, conference. Was, yeah, very impressive. So I thought maybe that would be the one to do it on. So this is what I've come up with. Dubbo's gathering, quite the affair, focused on skies and the fire-laden air. With tales of great fights and perilous flights, they shared knowledge with passion and care. <laughs> well done. Well done as usual. Congratulations. Well, folks, that just about wraps us up for another Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Until next week, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.